Mark 13, which is known to many as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew, and also in Luke. In this chapter, Jesus has been prophetically telling his people, his disciples, about the events that will surround the destruction of the temple and is revealing also the circumstances and events surrounding his own return. It's helpful as we begin this morning to remember two things as we consider this passage. First, we need to remember that Jesus is speaking these words first and foremost to his disciples. They were the ones who first heard these words. They had just left the temple. They were enthralled by its beauty. And in the midst of this, Jesus declares authority over the people and over the building. You might remember when Jesus was turning over the tables in the temple. It was a visual sign that he was the one who had authority in that place. Then as they are walking out of the temple complex, you will remember at the beginning of Mark 13, the disciples were quite excited and quite enthralled by the grandeur of the architecture of Herod's temple. And it truly was a a wonder. It it was a, a wonder in that day. It was magnificent and beautiful as we have considered. And it was in the midst of this context that Jesus gives his disciples some of the most stark and startling words. I'm going to destroy this place. Not one stone will be left here. All of this beauty will be utterly destroyed. God will soon come, Jesus says, and wipe this from the face of the earth. We further then have concluded in the last two sermons that this passage, these these words that Jesus tells us in Mark 13, are most assuredly fulfilled in 70 AD when, when the Romans under the emperor Titus destroy the temple and completely eradicate the city of Jerusalem. But we further understand that that though this is fulfilled within an immediate context of of 70 AD, we understand that there's still yet this sort of future, unfulfilled portion of it. You and I live in that sort of tension of time between the already fulfilled in 70 AD and the not yet fully fulfilled as we have come to understand it in the future. This already and not yet. That tension needs to be sort of the guiding principle as we think about these passages. Encourage you anytime you're reading prophetic passages, always think about the already fulfilled, but the not yet fulfilled in the end. We don't want to come to this passage with sort of a, a kind of an overrealized eschatology, an overrealized understanding, perhaps as we see in a preterist understanding of this passage, saying that all of it's fulfilled, there's nothing left to be fulfilled, all of this is complete in the past. Nor do we want to interpret this in an overly exclusive future fulfillment as you see in a dispensational interpretation. I think that is equally unwise and unhelpful. And so we want to find some sort of middle ground here in this passage to see that already but yet not yet fulfillment. Now the second audience that we must remember is is there, not literally there, but that is the the first readers, the, the ones Mark is writing to. So we have the disciples, but then we have like the, the first readers of this of this gospel, which would have been those living in Rome in A.D. 50, 55, somewhere in that neighborhood. These would have been largely, largely Gentile readers, 
although there was some Jews there in Rome, we understand that they would have mainly been those coming from outside Judaism and would have been unknown to some of these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus alludes to in his word. And we want to be careful in our interpretation. Furthermore, these readers would have been riddled with persecution and tribulation as they sought to follow Christ within a culture, within a worldview that saw the emperor as supreme lord. We want to have that sort of in the back of our mind as we think about that these words were written for them and then understand, well, what is the principle for our life today in Christ? And again, I think it's just helpful to kind of stand back from these words and not get muddled down in all the details. Not to get confused by some of these words. To be clear, there are some difficult verses that we're going to consider this morning. So we might spend an extra few minutes in the sermon this morning to make clear some of this, these confusing words that Jesus makes about him not knowing anything about the end times, that when it's going to happen. Or Jesus' confusing words about this generation will not pass away until all these things are accomplished. What does Jesus mean by these things? Fundamentally, we must not get bogged down in the details, but understand the sort of the main thrust of the passage, the main, the main point that Jesus is making. And that main point is watchfulness. Jesus repeatedly throughout this section has used the, the sort of same word and, and sort of and, and kind of threw it in different light, different meaning. That is stay awake, be alert, keep your eyes open. I'm coming again. The sort of alertness and watchfulness and wakefulness of should mark the disciples of Jesus. So, therefore, my hope is not to get sort of bogged down in these details, not to get lost in the unending debates sort of surrounding these passages. We could talk into the night about, you know, how to interpret them and how to see them. But what will happen is, is we will get lost in these words. And as Christians, we must not be tempted to sort of just sit and camp out under one tree and look at that one tree and not consider what the whole Bible has to say about these matters. Not sort of get bogged down with one word and one phrase and then just spend our entire life. No, we, did, we sort of step back, look at the whole force. What is the main thrust? What are the main things? What are the plain things? And go from there. That's our hope this morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. Mark chapter 13, verse 21. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that, the, that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away or will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. 
for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and you and be, excuse me, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So what is Jesus' point? What is the main thrust of this passage? It is this. The return of Jesus Christ is an imminent, triumphal event where Jesus will display his authority over all things and bring to consummation the kingdom of God. Therefore, stay awake. You don't know when. Now, understanding that Jesus here is talking about his return, there's sort of three main things I want us to consider this morning. Three things on sort of how do Christians wait I think Jesus sort of outlines for us here three ways that we await his return. Three ways that we sort of sit back and say, okay, Jesus is coming. All right, in light of that truth, Jesus is coming. How do I wait? Do I sleep? Stay awake? What do I do? Three things. First, Christians wait with comfort, knowing the Lord will return triumphantly to vindicate his people. So we wait with comfort. Secondly, Christians wait with assurance. Knowing the Lord's return is certain. It's certain. And thirdly, we'll consider Christians wait with watchfulness and alertness, knowing the Lord will return at any moment. So let's quickly consider these things. First, we are to wait as Christians with comfort. With comfort. Knowing that the Lord will return triumphantly to vindicate his people. Jesus in this narrative shifts in verse 24. You'll notice that he says, but in those days. Jesus begins to shift the focus from the destruction of the temple to another event. He's been telling his disciples about the details associated with that. Some signs that would indicate their need to get out of town. Jesus has outlined for them the the abomination of desolation and the coming destruction of the temple. Jesus then shifts in these verses to to a near future to that event, particularly the second coming of Christ. So Jesus here is shifting the camera focus, if you will. Now what's difficult for us is that often we read this passage as if it happens in some sort of boom, boom, boom time frame one minute after the other minute without considering the fact that possibly there is a gap between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and then Jesus' return. Now, in my interpretation of this passage and this sermon, I'm taking a majority view of this passage. That is, I'm taking what the church has sort of believed over the 2,000 year, 2000 year period, not so much what the church has articulated in the last 100 or 200 years. To be clear, this interpretation is what the majority of Christians for 2,000 years, unless, unlike others who want to understand this passage ultimately fulfilled in 70 AD, and we can sort of preface if, you, if you're not familiar with that term, um, which I'll be reminding you about that wonderful view there, which I think is wrong. I think what's happening here 
these things? Is that already what not yet has happened? That is, Jesus says, look, there is nothing awaiting my return. There is a way also to understand this passage as being particularly centered around that destruction of the temple, as I just mentioned. And what I mean by that is interpreters will see, and I think it's a very good argument, and it could be possible, but I think it's too narrow. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. There's a way to look at these passages, at these verses particularly, and understand that what Jesus is referring to in these verses is the destruction of the temple. That is, that the destruction of the temple will be so horrific, it will be so earth-shattering, that it will be as if the, the moon is, dar- is darkened and the stars are falling and that the sun does not give its light. It will be as, as earth-shattering as that. And I think that's true. I think it was such a thing. But I don't want to narrow it to saying that it, it only refers to that event. So what are we to make of Jesus' words here? How are we to understand what he means by them? Are we to take them literally? is quoting Isaiah 13 verbatim, word for word. And Isaiah 13.10 did not literally happen. It was a reference to what would happen when Babylon was destroyed by the Assyrian army. What would it be like when the great Babylon was was destroyed? And so what Jesus here is echoing is kind of that similar expression we use, I'm going to shake things up. When Jesus destroyed Babylon, when God destroyed Babylon, it shook the cosmos. It was an earth-shattering thing. When God destroyed the temple in 70 AD, it was an earth-shattering event. It was a visible chaos. So also in this verse 25. There will be a visible chaos And so Jesus' point here is, so it's the Sabbath. It's going to be annoying. It's going to be stinging, right? When you see this, this sort of earth-shattering event, and that, that seems to be the point. But if you look at verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power. Now, I know what you automatically assume when you read that, when you see Jesus coming on the clouds with great power. I think you're right to assume that, right? Because that's what Luke told us in Acts. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, the angels are, are there, and they tell the disciples, look, the way you saw Jesus leave, that's the way he's coming again. I do think that's what Mark or Luke is referring to. Mark is quoting verbatim Isaiah, or excuse me, Daniel 7. He's quoting Daniel 7, this, and, the, and the Son of Man Coming before the ancient of days. Listen to what I listen to what Daniel says. I saw a night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Again, I think Jesus' point here is that the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was a vindication, a proof, a triumphant declaration to the Jewish people and to the world that Jesus is on the throne. That Jesus is reigning victorious. As Daniel prophesied, as Daniel saw when he saw the Son of Man. Look, it's the same language. Jesus uses this language of the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. The language is the same as Daniel 7. In visions of night, behold, coming in clouds of heaven, there came one like a son. So this passage is more about Jesus' triumphal, victorious reign than it is to some precise event in the future. I think that, again, this passage needs to be seen as an already and a continuation into the future. Jesus is, if you will, coming in clouds with great power and glory every day. And every day Jesus is reigning victorious over this universe. Jesus then continues by detailing the further activity that will accompany his return. Notice what he says. And they, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You need to understand from this that Jesus is going to gather every one of those that are his. From every place they may be found into the world. When Jesus comes, there will be no one outside the reach of Jesus. Now, if you consider, be comforted by these words. Remember what these first readers must have felt like when they heard this. In the midst of persecution and suffering, in the midst of seeing Caesar walk by their windows every day, and the crowd shouting, Emperor Caesar is Lord. They were reminded as they saw the Roman troops marching outside their home that one day those troops would be destroyed. That King Jesus would come again and he was going to be victorious. It gave them great comfort. And what comfort to our own ears as we hear these words to know that Jesus will come soon to rescue us from the darkness of this world. He will come again to gather his church wherever his church may be. No matter the darkness around us, no matter how bleak it is in this country or in other countries, Jesus, the true light, knows where you're at. He knows where you're at. The promise comes to our lives that no matter the darkness, Jesus knows where I'm at. Though the times be bleak and though the times are dark, one day, perhaps it's today. 
Jesus in his triumphal entry. We gather here to celebrate. Let's pray. This is why we sing Philip Glick's triumphal song. When he comes, our Lord is king, and all his ransomed foes he breaks. His ransomed host. What words is Philip is using there? We're his home. We, we, we are his bride, his people, his body. Then anew this song will sing hallelujah. What a sweet song. When we, we will not get over singing. A little illustration here. I remember years ago I had a young lady. Uh, she was a well-meaning college student. Well-meaning college student. Thank you. Uh, and uh, she came to me after a sermon uh, somewhat distraught and upset. And because of what she called my view of heaven was boring. And I said, well, it's really not my view. It's the Bible's view of heaven. And uh, what she meant was that we would just be like worshiping, be like an endless worship service. Now, two things. First, this young lady had really only experienced boring worship services, so I really can't fault her for that. Uh, but two, yes, that is true. What we will be doing is heaven is, is singing the endless praise of Jesus. And what a more glorious praise to do that. Friends, this passage does bring comfort, but it doesn't bring comfort The return of Jesus is yet a triumphal festival. It's a day where, as we read in Daniel 7, every tribe and every tongue and every nation will bow before him, willingly or unwillingly. It is a day of judgment. It is a day when Jesus will come with muscles flexed and sword in hand, ready to vindicate his people. We will destroy presidents and kings who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. You can be assured of that. You can rest in that. This means that those who are not his will be destroyed. The return of Christ, yes, is a joyful and exciting event for those that are his, but for those that are not, it is a day in which you will see is yet still in eternity before us. And one day the eternal judgment will come on the church. There's hope for you in that God has provided, if you will, an escape from this day of wrath. The Bible tells us that God sent his son to deal with sin in his first advent or his first coming. It'll be in his second coming that he deals with sin in judgment. But God dealt with sin through our sin, through the cross of Jesus Christ, by, by him bearing out the wrath of God for our sins, the sins of rebellious humanity, so that all those who would repent of sin and trust in Christ can be restored, to know that today you can have a relationship with the eternal God who is Turn away from your life of sorrow and turn to Christ. 
Lord comforts his people. And then secondly, we see that as Christians, we are to await with assurance, knowing that the Lord's return is certain. Let's look with me in verses 28 through 30. The Lord encourages his disciples here to wait with a sense of assurance, knowing that there is a certainty to the Lord's return. It's not just mere words that Jesus is spilling out. Yeah, I might come back. It might happen. Not really sure what's going to happen. But, you know, this is just sort of some of the sketchy details. No. He says, this is what's going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. I'm coming again. You can have assurance of that fact. And so Jesus says, learn from this history lesson. Now, to be clear, Jesus is shifting, I think, back to the temple destruction again. He's sort of kind of shifting back and forth from this temple destruction. He's saying, listen, when you see the fig tree, you, you learn from it this lesson. Look what he says. He says, as soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that spring is near. Now, this little phrase doesn't seem like an interpretation, right? Clearly, what Jesus is saying is, hey, there's visible signs on this fig tree. You know when summer's near, when the like us, right? Right? I can't wait. You know, you start to see the blossoms on the tree. Warm days are ahead, right? You get encouragement. You get joy. You get you get sort of the sense of, yes, it's these cold days. They're almost over. My aching bones will ache no more. Right? And so Jesus knows that this familiar illustration is the point. There will be visible signs of his presence at his return. Consider those things. And so Jesus is pointing to them. But he is also pointing beyond them. And Jesus' disciples, I think, are to understand and come to him when these events take place. They can know that they will see him. Now, we don't have time. There's so many in here, we don't have time to do this. I would just sort of point it out to you. And you can go think about it together later. Verse 29. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it, Once the destruction of the temple occurs, you can know that he is coming at any moment. For I am near, and you are to be assured. Be assured, Jesus says, of the proximity of Jesus. And even if all of these verses refer to only future events, you will then be comforted in this assurance that the world around us may be crumbling, it may be an Armageddon, if you World War III. You can take comfort and assurance knowing that the Lord is near. There is yet another very difficult passage as Jesus continues in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I am not the Lord of the text on that. I'm not the Lord to answer all of your questions, but I think there's a couple things I would point out. First, what is this generation referring to? Does he mean like his contemporaries or some future generation? And these things, what are these things? Is it, is it the end of all the coming of Christ and his rulership? Is that what it is? Is that what he refers to? Or is it different? Has referred to his contemporaries. That is, he's 
referred to as Jesus' name. He's saying that, look, that this sign, this sign, this visible sign, this destruction of the temple will happen in this generation, in the generation of Jews living in Jerusalem. And you can know that once that happens, I am is talking about nearness, that 2,000 years comes to not mean anything. I mean, really think about it in a, in a sense of this. If you take 2,000 years and you back up something, you take, and you maybe maybe draw a, a timeline of two million years, 2,000 years doesn't look that big. So we want to be careful that we don't just brush this passage under the rug. And so Jesus concludes with these confident, reassuring words. And then in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My friends, heaven is going to pass away. Jesus couldn't be any more plain than that, right? This whole world may cease to exist, but my words will not cease to exist. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you can have confidence that my words are true and trustworthy. These disciples can be confident that Jesus' words are eternal. This prophecy will happen. Because this is the point Jesus is making. Regardless of how we understand some of these obscure, sort of difficult passages, and, and trust me, you know, that, that includes this count of 2,000 years. We can understand Jesus is very clear what he means here. Look, my words will not pass away. My words are true and trustworthy. Therefore, you can trust me. He's given a sense of assurance, of reassurance. When they see these things happen, when they see the world come crumbling, if they were to take sort of a sense of, they were not to be given in to endless speculation. Christians are not chicken little. We don't run around the sky is falling spiral. Regardless of who's in Washington, those things aren't as certain as that. That's what Jesus is saying. That God is sovereign over human history. These things have given Christians assurance for thousands of years and give us assurance for the present. Are we made to may just feel like giving up, we can lift our head high to heaven and see the Lord is coming quickly. Let's look thirdly and finally that we are to wait with Jesus makes these, again, the most striking, hotly tested words uh, of Jesus. He says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, no, <laughs> we don't know. What do you mean we 
God never feel, your father never filled you in on what's going on? What, what's the deal? What's up? Now, I understand that for 2,000 years the church has suffered with that. In fact, early on in the church, they actually just killed Pastor They just sort of said, we'll scratch that doorstep. But early manuscript evidence shows that the church has wrestled with these words too. Kind of been embarrassed by them. Like, he's just you know, kind of revealing that he doesn't know everything. Well, there's several ways we can look at this passage, but I think it's, I, I, I'm not going to get into it, but Jesus is not talking about his omniscience. What Jesus is ta- saying is, don't be concerned about the things I know. Jesus' point in this passage is that, I'm not worried about it, I don't know about it, you don't need to know about it. If I don't know about it, I'm not worried about it, you don't need to be worried about it. He was putting the pivot. So we might try to say, oh yeah, Jesus is some, somehow not on He's not omniscient. Jesus did not hide something. He's got a, not hyperbole. He's saying, look, I don't know these things. And if you want to make a point about Jesus' Christology, I do want, I was trying to indicate something. Look what he says. He says, not the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. There is a sense of hierarchy here that he, that he has. That the Son is, is somehow more authoritative in a greater position than angels in heaven. It seems to be very high in Christology and Christianity. So I think it's best to see that Jesus is saying that we do not need to be concerned. What we need to focus on isn't trying to figure out when, but how. That is, that Jesus' focus here is that we should be ready if you're, you're sort of caught up in that sort of Harold Camping way with the end times, trying to predict and, and count verses and all these crazy things that he did and, and others, if you're caught up with trying to figure out when, well, frankly, you won't be ready. So Jesus is saying, don't be focused on trying to figure things out. Focus on getting your hearts ready before Jesus. I was so caught early in my, in my life, I had a, had a professor who exhorted us to Christians have been debating the end times at generations. That what we need to get right first is holiness. If we get holiness right, then we can worry about all these other things. What, what, he, what he is saying is that what our focus should be isn't endless speculation and debate, but rather living Christ-centered and Christ-exalting lives. Sharing the gospel. We need to be about the Father's business. As Jesus then points this illustration, right? Look at verse 33. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he gives this wonderful illustration of kind of like our lives. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper. Commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You don't know when the master's going to come. He could come at any time. And so we notice Jesus' point there. Jesus' point isn't to be caught up and trying to figure it out. What we're to do is to be given over to holiness and pursue. We're to be Jesus has left us in charge. He's given us some responsibility. He's told us that we need to be doing some things. Politicians need to do some messaging. What is that message? Jesus loves us. And we are to be about Christ and the glory of the gospel. We are to be about the master's business. And so what we see that then is this need for watchfulness. So, so how do we watch? 
That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says you need to be watchful because you don't know when I'm coming. You need to be awake and alert because you don't know when it's going to happen. Oh, how many will be surprised when Jesus returns? How many will be shocked when he just shows up? How many will be embarrassed? Occupying your time when Jesus comes. Well, what will this congregation be giving themselves to doing when Jesus comes? Will we, will the Lord find us about the Master's work? Or will He perhaps find us concerned about our own personal lives, our own personal material pursuits, greater land and greater wealth? This is why Paul is dealing with the church in Titus and elsewhere. That we need to have an earnest attentiveness and cautiousness to our own sinful hearts and a relentless pursuit of holiness. Paul writes in Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says, this is, what, hey, this is the present age that you need to be giving yourself to. Waiting, he says, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So wh- what are we to do when we wait, Paul says? You need to be busy. we got work to do. He says you should be training. Now, this language is, 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 of training implies work, right? Uh, anybody ever been to the gym? You know, that's work, right? Or you've been to rehab. It's work. Training is work. And Paul says you need to be working. Working to forsake this world. Working hard to lose your grip on your past life before the Lord. Learning to lose the grip you have on this world and grasping out for a new identity in Christ. That's what we are to be about. We're to live, he says, self-controlled, upright, godly lives today. Not tomorrow. Not in eternity, today. Friends, we are preparing for the Lord. We are, if you will, in boot camp. We're in boot camp. This life in Christ is preparing you for that day. You want to recognize that everything you do is in preparation for that day? Does our Lord require us to neglect any of the duties of life in the expectation that it's when we put our jobs and start our own business that we will fall into the trap? He goes on, he requires nothing of the kind. He does not bid the farmer neglect his land or the laborer his work, the merchant his business or the warrior his art. All he asks is that baptized people to live up to the faith into which they were baptized. To live as repentant people, to 
live as a believing people. Live as people who know that without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. So living, we are ready to meet our master. Not living in this way, we are not either fit for death To live in this way is to be truly happy because it is to be truly prepared for anything that may come upon earth. Let us never be content with the lower standard of practical Christianity. Oh, what a healthy reminder in the epistle. We don't give in to endless speculation. Perhaps Protected from the lures of sin and death. That we would trust in you. Lord, as our Lord was climbing Mount Jesus one day and saw Jesus and celebrate that he could walk with him. The Lord's Supper is has everything to do with eternal life. This is what we look to as a reminder that what Christ did and what Christ will do. As we prepare uh, during this time to